Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. In this episode, we're going to look at the Cutters' riots. Joining me in this discussion is an old friend. Hello there. I'm David Charnick. I'm a qualified City of London tour guide, but I also guide a fair bit in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, where I've lived all my life. And I also teach tour guiding through the local authority, the council. Good morning, David. The last time uh, you and I met, we were in um, Isle of Dogs in the East End of London. That's right. So what I'd like to do today is have a chat with you about the Cutters riots, which I believe sort of took place mainly in the Spitalfields and Bethnal Green area. That's correct, yes. They took place in the 1760s and involved uh, silk weavers because the silk weaving trade, and indeed silk as a whole, was the major trade in the East End of London in the 1700s. Uh, when I say the East End, that's literally the western part of the East End as it touches onto the city. So Spitalfields heading north to Bethnal Green, then up to Shoreditch and out eastwards a little bit to Stepney and Whitechapel. Yes, because when I'm teaching the knowledge, um, one of the things we always bring up to help people remember, you know, the, the street, names of the streets and the roads, is events that occurred in these areas and sort of Crispin Street and Fournier Street and all those little side roads were, I think, a key part of this. So can you tell me what sort of led to the riots? In the 18th century, lots of trades were getting very active because of poor conditions and poor pay and that sort of thing. Everyone from coal heavers all the way up to hat makers, you know, and that sort of far more genteel trade. But it was the silk weavers that were most active. And they had two major problems. One of them was, as I say, the pay, because people, you have the, the master weavers, they're the people who've got the money. They have worked their way up and invested and they've got the money and they employ the journeymen who actually do the work. And so the master weavers provide the looms because, of course, this is a cottage industry, hand looms, you know, uh, pre-industrial stuff. And they would provide the looms and the silk to be woven and then the journeyman would get on with it. But inevitably, they would try and pay as little as possible to ensure the uh, maximum profit. But also, a lot of them were refusing to contribute to the general fund, which was a sort of hardship fund. And uh, that was considered just too much. And so by the 1760s, there was so much pressure on the trade that uh, the the weavers themselves decided to take 
things into their own hands. There'd already been a lot of action, like um, marching on Westminster with great black flags and things like that uh, because of the pressures on the trade, and also attacking women who were wearing cotton dresses because they should be wearing proper silk dresses, you know, whereas cotton cloth or calico was being imported from India by the East India Company, and that was undercutting the silk trade, and uh, would actually go around with bottles of ink and throw the ink over these women's dresses to spoil them. You know? So it was a form of early trade unionism with a viol- touch of violence to it. It certainly was direct action, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, although the activities were organised on a small scale. Um, you had these things called combinations or committees, which weren't just in the silk trade. They were other trades as well, but it's just the ones of the, the silk trade and the silk weavers that were uh, most high profile. But these small combinations would be small gangs of craftsmen. Each one would be associated with a particular pub right. or alehouse, and they would organise the direct action, which in the case of the silk weavers was to attack looms and literally to cut the silk from the looms, which is why it's called the Cutter's Riots. And, I mean, who would have... Were there any sort of secret service or or police force around in those days who would have tried to infiltrate them and report back, or, or how did that work? No, you didn't have any form of policing. The nearest you've got was the watch, which had been, well, the watch goes back to ancient times, but it was the duty of every householder to be a watchman. And so you would walk the streets at night looking out for any disturbance or seemingly illegal behaviour. But a lot of people didn't want to do that. And so if they could afford to, they would pay people to do it for them. So you would get these people who couldn't earn money any other way. And they would be happy to do a year's service for somebody else as the watchman. And so they were obviously incompetent and greedy and so on. And so they were useless, really, mostly. But no, you would rely on information given by either sort of disaffected colleagues. Maybe there was a a grudge that somebody held against somebody else so they would inform or something like that. Or you would ask people to overhear you know, you'd listen in, you'd go to one of these alehouses where a combination was and, and they would know who the people were. So they'd try and get close enough to get a bit of an earwig and um, hear what they were up to, where the next bit of action was going to take place. And did the master weavers and the cutters live side by side in the same streets, the same areas, or did sort of one lot live below the other? The journeyman weavers, the people who did the work, they were living in those traditional weavers' cottages, which you don't really find in Spitalfields anymore, but there's quite a few in Bethnal Green in various states of preservation. And that was where you lived and that's where you did your work. So you had these characteristic big windows with the humped tops to get in as much daylight as you could um, because they couldn't use artificial light because that would mean candles or lamps which could smoke and you'd literally weave that into the cloth and you didn't want that whereas your master weavers the people with the money they were settling into these new houses in streets like Fournier Street and Wilk Street and Princelet Street and Hanbury Street if you go down there now you can see these terraces of what were once fine Georgian houses so they were the townhouses of the master weavers because they had the cash and so um, you would get 
developers who would demolish streets of these weaver's cottages and then erect very nice terraces of Georgian townhouses. And that's where the master weavers and the silk merchants and so on as well, who sold the cloth, uh, and they they would live there. They would rent those houses. And so the, the workers, as it were, were being pushed further out, up to Bethnal Green and Shoreditch and so on. Okay, yes, because obviously when you're driving around there, Fournier Street and some of those little side streets, the houses have been preserved there and they're quite fantastic to see and they're, they're you know, dark and dreary now, but there's still something special about them. Now, leading on from that then, so how did the strikes start to collapse? What, 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 what sort of stopped it? Violence, really. <laughs> there was a, a raid on the 8th of August, 1769, uh, Thomas and Mary Poor, P-O-O-R, who lived on Stocking Frame Alley, which was near Cock Lane, which is the western part of Redchurch Street now, coming off of, or between Bethnal Green Road and Shoreditch High Street. And they were visited by one of these combinations. And as usual, what would happen was the combinations would go armed and they would either persuade the journeyman to let them in, or if they couldn't do that, they would threaten them and force their way in. And then they would attack the looms that belonged to master weavers who, as I mentioned, either weren't paying properly or weren't contributing to the general fund or both. And so they attacked the looms belonging to a man called Horton. And nothing was said after that until Louis Chauvet, who had a manufactory making silk handkerchiefs on Crispin Street, he put up a reward pot of £500. And 1769, £500 is a serious amount of money. And suddenly... Uh, Mary Poor's memory got better and she couldn't read or write so she found a friend who could and dictated a letter to her and two men were arrested in consequence John Valine and John Doyle and they were convicted in spite of evidence in October of taking part in this raid and they were hanged outside the Salmon and Ball on what's now Cambridge Heath Road in December 1769 and then after that uh, another man was convicted, William Horsford, and he was hanged at Tyburn, out at where Marble Arch is now. And uh, this led to a small spate of hangings which came to a head with the lynching of a man called Daniel Clark, who seemingly was being paid for giving his evidence at these trials. And so he was walking along and uh, suddenly people were following him and that gathered into a mob and they sort of shepherded him down to what's now Cheshire Street, used to be Hare Street, where there was a brickfield and they got hold of him. By the time they got to the brickfield, they got hold of him. They stripped him down to his underwear. This is April 1771 and by account of various witnesses, it was snowing, so freezing cold. And they chucked him into this pit of water because being a brickfield, it's all clay. There's no drainage. And so they chucked him into this pit of water and started throwing things at him. Bits of wood, but also broken bricks, spoiled bricks, you know, or brick bats as they're known, half bricks, and just throwing them at him, pelting him away and uh, basically killed him. And 
so this was a lynching and two men were convicted of it and they were hanged just by St. Matthew's Church there, the original parish church of Bethnal Green. Right. So why did they not hang everybody at Tyburn? Why, for example, with Doyle and his, and, his, and his compartment not hanged at Tyburn? Well, they hanged most of them at Tyburn, but Valine and Doyle uh, were to be hanged at Bethnal Green because that was at the heart of the weaving trade at that point. Okay. And so they wanted an exemplary execution. And so they were to be hanged at the middle of the community. And that's why it took two months, more or less, before they were hanged, because they needed permission from the king, uh, because the traditional place of execution, as you say, was Tyburn. Uh, but they wanted to hang them out there. And um, the alderman of the City of London and the Lord Mayor wanted the king's approval, just in case anyone said to them, well, you can't do that, you've got to take them back to Tyburn. And it took time. And the whole community sort of gathered to watch them hang, um, or no, not in a good way, obviously, uh, when they were putting up this uh, portable gallows outside the, the alehouse, as it was then. The crowd was gathering, and the mood was turning nasty. So they were supposed to be hanged at 11 o'clock, but they turned them off early so that they could get them hanged and get out before the mob got too big, because they had a file of soldiers with them, but even so, it wouldn't have been enough to have kept the mob back. The mob, would that have been formed from other trades as well as weavers and cutters? Would, you know, would, would they, you know, like unions today would stick together. Did that happen in those times? It would have been the whole community, yeah, because these two men were part of the local community. Right. So uh, they would have turned up, not because they were sort of fellow weavers or whatever but they were just fellow locals right neighbors yeah absolutely so yeah and when the the two had been hanged the bodies were taken away quickly and they thought well just leave the gallows we haven't got time for that get the bodies out quick and so the people stormed the gallows smashed it up and then off they went down bethnal green road to crispin street and they sacked uh louis chauvet Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Handkerchief manufacturing. This is when inside ripped everything out, chucked it out the front and burned it in a great big bonfire, which was what you did in those days. You attacked a property by ripping everything out that would burn and making a bonfire outside. And how did they decide who was chiefly responsible for the demise of Clark? They didn't. Um, There was an investigation which was inconclusive. And so they managed to get sufficient evidence against two men who were hanged, again, locally as an exemplary thing. But by that time, uh, all the rioting and stuff was running out of steam. And so... Uh, this seems to have been the last act of violence, the, the violence against Daniel Clark. So that was 1771, and two years later you get the Spitalfields Acts beginning to appear. And this was legislation to set the rate of pay. So every quarter, every three months, the magistrates of Middlesex would get together with the aldermen of the City of London, and they would set the wages and there was a, a complete scale from throasters up to the um, the sellers of uh, the actual fabric itself. And uh, that was all set and fixed every three months. And that was supposed to help. The trouble was it ended up strangling the industry because it meant you couldn't pay low wages during the slack periods. You had to pay the standard wages. So instead of taking on a lot of people at a lower wage, the pe- the journeyman would only be employed at the standard wage, which meant only a few of them could be employed, and you had unemployment appearing for the first time. And also you couldn't reward industry because you couldn't put up the, rage- the wages because they were fixed. And so you couldn't reward innovation and so on and uh, productivity. So ultimately, of course, the trade was overtaken. It was already being pressurised by industrially produced textiles as it was. How long after did it last? I mean, at what period did it sort of peter out so it became non-existent anymore? The trade was more or less strangled by the time the Spitalfields Acts were repealed in 1824. But weaving did carry on, certainly through the 19th century into the 20th, but on a very small scale. In 1860, locally to me, what used to be the local parish church, uh, St Simon the Zealot at Bethnal Green, that was actually demolished after the war, um, in the Spectator magazine, a contributor had gone down there in 1860 to follow the local vicar because there was a lot of worry about how uh, the Church of England was putting funding into missions overseas and neglecting its own outreach locally. And so this man went down and followed the Reverend Christie, who was the local vicar, and his wife through a day's work. And one of the things they did was to visit local weavers. So we know there was certainly some weaving going on in 1860, but um, on a much smaller scale. I mean, 
during the time of the 18th century into the 19th, you had thousands and thousands of weavers' cottages in Bethnal Green. It was so widespread. But by the late 19th century, you've just got handfuls. And so that was the end of the industry. Very much so, yeah. Although, of course, it, it would have been difficult to sustain because it was a cottage industry. Even with the number of people you had doing the work, it was still a cottage industry with hand looms, whereas in the West Midlands and the North, you're getting all the factories appearing and, and certainly the mills of northern England producing huge amounts of cotton cloth. Because cotton, of course, was the big enemy to silk because it took the place of silk. It was what you had your new underwear made of. It was a lot cheaper and, uh, and more hard-wearing as well. And the original silk weavers, um, were they uh, born and bred in, in that area or were they immigrants who brought the skills with them? There was a mixture of people. Uh, of course, when we think of silk weaving in the East End, we think of the Huguenots, the Protestant French, who were fleeing the persecution. The, I mean, it, they were already being persecuted, but in 1685, the Edict of Fontainebleau came along which said you had to be a Catholic. And that meant a lot of immigration from France. And the Huguenots that came to London, they settled in Soho and Spitalfields. And so the ones that settled in Spitalfields largely got involved in the silk trade. So there was a, a silk weaving trade in France. And so a number of weavers came over and they brought innovations of technique with them. But they got involved in an existing trade. But also there were other nationalities, especially the Irish, because of course the Irish got very fine weaving traditions. And going back to Valine and Doyle, well, you can tell from their surnames, Valine was Huguenot French, Doyle was Irish. So a lot of Irish involved. Um, in fact, Daniel Murphy was the head one of one of these combinations in Bethnal Green that was uh, raided on the 30th of September at the Dolphin Ale House. And the alehouses you refer to, are they largely gone now or any of them surviving? Most of them are gone. But the thing about the 18th century alehouses in an area like Bethnal Green is they got replaced in the 19th century by Victorian pubs because London was becoming industrial. You had a much greater population, greater density of population who needed to be better served by bigger pubs. So <clears throat> the Salmon and Ball where Doyle were hanged. I mean, that goes back to 1733. That's still there, but it's a Victorian pub. Um, the old George, which goes back to 1703, possibly two, uh, which is the oldest continually occupied pub site in Bethnal Green, uh, that's still occupied by a pub, but again, a Victorian one and so on. Um, there was a big raid on a combination at the Dolphin Ale House on New Cock Lane, which is the eastern part of Redchurch Street. In, on 30th of September 1769, and that was replaced with a Victorian pub, which is now a shop that sells household goods. And so kitchenware, that kind of thing, you know, bespoke, well, not bespoke, you know, but yeah. boutique uh, kitchen. So there's a continuing evolution, um, which I find fascinating, of the buildings in the East End. As soon as they knock them down, they're replaced with something else, or they, there's an evolution that takes place, as you say, from pubs to alehouses, or alehouses to pubs. Mm. That's very true. <clears throat> Although, of course, with the nature of development today, um, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you've got um, what used to be the Bladebone pub on Bethnal Green Road, which 
became very notorious because of its association with the British Union of Fascists in the 30s. And then the the post-war rebuild um, was associated very much with the National Front in the 70s and the 80s and the British National Party and that sort of thing. Um, that became a noodle bar in the 1990s, uh, but that was demolished just demolished just a few years ago to be replaced with a small block of flats. And these little small blocks of flats keep appearing, on, especially if you've got a standalone building. Um, I mean, a pub, you've got loads of... You used to say, you know, use it or lose it. But nowadays, you've got lots of little community pubs that stand alone. And they're very much used, but they will never be as profitable as the site is profitable for development. And so... Um, yeah, you've got various instances around where pubs have just been demolished. I mean, just a little bit further east on Globe Road, quite near where I am, all the pubs have been demolished over time, over the last, what, 20 years, and replaced with teeny blocks of flats. So I suppose when we look back at the Cutters riots, where they used the alehouse as a meeting place, <laughs> subsequent groups have also used those pubs as meeting places for whatever their various concerns would be. Yeah, the pub was always the focus of the community. That's the thing. Especially when you get to the 19th century, as I say, with London expanding because of the docks, because of industry and so on, and you've got landlords or developers who are throwing up these terraces of houses. They want to maximise their rental income. And so what they would do would be to let out a room at a time. Now, how, no matter how big your family is, you can only get a room. So that's where all those stories come from about whole families living in one room. So the pub, for a start, gave you a bit of elbow room. You know, uh, you could go down there. And that gave you um, the focus of life because you couldn't have people around to your place. No. Because it was full of the family. Um, and you didn't have, well, where else would you meet? You know, that's the thing. So um, people would meet, groups would meet in the upstairs rooms at pubs. And we talked about the Huguenots. Well, there were a lot of Huguenot benefit societies, a lot of them based around specific areas of France or um, specific cities, you know. Um, so the Huguenots from there would belong to these beneficial societies. And they, of course, were all based in pubs. Yeah, everything was based in pubs. They really were the hub of the community. And switching back again to the to the Cutters riots, um, had had they organised themselves as a massive group, or were they based around the individual alehouses? The actual combinations themselves, each one was based at a specific alehouse. So the the wider context was the trade itself. So you were all following the same trade, you were all suffering the same problems, and you all had the same issues, etc. You know, so there was the the, the sense of community in that way, but they weren't organised. They would coordinate with each other, you know, from time to time. Right, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, and there is, I mean, there are, there have been letters that have survived between one particular combination in London and a group in Dublin which again, the Irish connection that I mentioned earlier, you know, and uh, and the two were sort of sending messages of mutual support, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so there's evidence of coordination, but not in any sort of meaningful way. So they didn't all get together to, uh, to attack certain uh, master weavers and equipment and stuff, you know, that sort of thing. That sort of thing. 
But, uh, I mean, there were big marches, as I mentioned earlier, and that sort of thing. So there were the other kinds of campaign. Okay, David, it's been very interesting once again. Um, Next week, we're going to continue with the theme of riots and we're going to discuss the Gordon riots. Yes, um, the beginning of modern rioting in many ways. Okay, thank you once again. Thank you very much, Derek. A pleasure. (laughs) 